0: Hello and welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your your host, Dr. Kirk I'm a licensed therapist and I'm a professor. It's just me today. I thought I would talk with you about some random random clinical things. The first thing that I'll say, though, is you can go to our podcast website called, or called, or I don't know, it's at psychologyinseattle.com. That's psychologyncl.com, and you can click on the Donate button and donate. That would be nice of you. You can also like us on Facebook. We always love to interact with our listeners on Facebook, and Humberto often will comment randomly on things, and you can make fun of him and whatnot. You can see our little pictures and da-da-da. Anyway, so donate and like us on Facebook. Just do those two things. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about is one of my supervisees asked me the following question. She told me that she had a client, a 13-year-old boy, who hated going to therapy before. But now he loved coming to therapy with her. And she felt quite good about this. She's like, yeah, I built a good relationship with this kid. And he actually likes coming to therapy now when he didn't before. And so I feel good about myself as a novice therapist. And then one session, the mother says... She's very pretty, referring to the therapist. Your therapist is very pretty. You should want to sit in here with her. And this comment made the my supervisee feel very uncomfortable, and she didn't know how to respond. And so essentially, you know, imagine you're a therapist. The mother says, ooh, you know, your therapist is very pretty or very handsome. And, you, you know, look at you talking with an attractive therapist, you know, you should feel privileged to talk to such a hot therapist, <laughs> and then the the kid gets a little, you know red in the face, and then you as a therapist are sitting there going, "Wait, what?" So this is a situation that uh, that happens rarely, but it does happen, especially if you have certain qualities of your physicality that get commented on. And so it's very complicated. You know, a, a knee-jerk reaction is for a therapist to say, that's inappropriate, I don't appreciate that, you're sexualizing the situation, stop it. And and by all means, if you feel violated in some way as a therapist or you just don't feel comfortable with it, you have every right to, to draw a boundary with that. That's the first thing I'll say, is that as therapists we often – Take this stance of like, well, we're, we're the we're the consummate helper, and the customer's always right, the client's always right, and so we we would never fight back or or draw a boundary with a client. But but there are certain things that if you feel violated, not only do you ha- do you have every right to establish that boundary. But also it might be therapeutic for the family to model boundary keeping, to model to families how t- someone keeps a boundary in a differentiated manner in a way that's assertive but not aggressive in a way that protects the self. And so then they can look at you and say, oh, that's how you do that in a way that's, that's self-protective but not hostile towards other people. So by all means, if something is bothering you, then say something like, you know, something like, I don't know, oh, I'm sorry, that's not appropriate um, because I'm a professional and commenting on those sorts of things might not be so great in therapy. So I'd appreciate it if you didn't comment on those sorts of things. Or maybe taking the mother aside and, and saying, you know, I know that you didn't mean any harm by what you said, but I would appreciate it if you didn't say things along those lines. I know you were just trying to be playful, but, but it's, it's not the sort of therapy that I want to do. And I don't want the boy to be thinking of me as a sexual object. You understand, right? And the mother might say, oh, yes, of course, I'm sorry. So, so by all means, if you want to say that. However, on the other hand, if you're physically attractive, and this is, you know, just that question alone, if you're physically attractive, I mean, ask yourself if you're a therapist, are you physically attractive in general to, to people? And if you are, then you just have to accept that. Because that's just a reality. And no matter how much you dress down, in all likelihood, people are going to continue to see you as an attractive person. And your therapist, your therapist, your your clients are going to see you as attractive and there's nothing you can do about that. And so let's just accept that. Now, again, in our culture, we not only do we shame people for acknowledging that they are sexually attractive or physically attractive in some way. So we don't even want people to even answer yes to that question. Yes, I'm sexually attractive. But the other thing is, is that we tend to relegate sexual attractiveness to particular venues you know, if you're out in the town and you're going clubbing and you've got your, your great, you know, what do the young people call clothes these days? Threads? <laughs> if you've got your, your, your kick-ass threads on <laughs> and you're looking all sexy, then, then in those situations, you want someone to potentially look at you as a sexual object. But if you're at work and you're a therapist, you don't want your clients looking at you as a sexual object. But you're the same person. Your, your sexual objectivity potential doesn't get turned off based on the room you're sitting in and, the, and even necessarily the outfit you're wearing. So the first step as a therapist is just to accept your body and to accept the place in the society that you have. You don't have to accept it in the way that it's like, okay, great, now I just have to be objectified all the time. But just accept that, that that's the way society is and that's the way people are. And so, so it's meaning that you have to acknowledge it, I guess it's a better – acknowledge it, don't accept it, but acknowledge it. And then the other thing is is that it, it is to acknowledge that some of your clients are going to look at you that way and that it doesn't mean that anything bad is going to happen. For instance, you could have a client consider you sexually attractive but not have it get in the way of the therapy. There's, you know, you you, imagine yourself, you're going into therapy with a client or with a therapist. Imagine yourself, you go into therapy and your therapist, you consider to be a hot therapist. Well, is that going to prevent you from having therapy work? You know, for most people, I would say no. Having said that, I have talked to people before that have said that they avoided therapists that they considered attractive because they absolutely thought it would get in the way. I had a friend of mine, a male friend of mine. He's actually a therapist. And he went to a therapist himself and was extremely attracted to his therapist and decided to terminate with her because he was very distracted by it and couldn't stop thinking about her in a romantic way and would edit a lot of the things that he said basically in an attempt to make her like him which was, in his mind, non-therapeutic for him. So there are situations like that. But for the most part, I find that, in, anecdotally, that when when clients acknowledge that their therapist is hot, that that doesn't necessarily lead to barriers to therapy. So so that's one thing I'll say. The other thing is, is that the sexual attraction, and specifically with this family that the supervisee brought up, that this issue is a therapeutic issue. The, the one thing that I often say that I find that just doesn't land very well with people because uh, you know I don't it must not be a very effective saying but in my mind it makes perfect sense is that the reason why clients come to you is because they have issues. You know that that statement is a very obvious statement, right? The reason why clients are coming to you is because they have issues. And, the, and by implication, what I'm saying is their issues will present themselves in therapy with you. And when they present themselves, when these issues present themselves, don't be annoyed by them. Be thankful that it, they're presenting themselves because that is what you need to work on. So when this mother and son call out in a way that makes the therapist feel invaded and violated and uncomfortable, then that indicates to you what might be wrong with this system and might give you a treatment focus upon which to work on. So for instance, with this mother and and son, it, there is a possibility that sexual abuse might be in their past and that as they heal and recover from sexual abuse and as you model someone who. Is able to establish boundaries about that, you are ultimately helping the client cure themselves, heal from that sexual abuse history. And to terminate with them or to get super uncomfortable or to deny them the opportunity to metabolize this material in therapy might ultimately be slowing down of the therapy you know for instance you know say i as a male had a female client who had been sexually abused by her father and she transfers her father onto me and starts to see me as being sexually abusive to her in some way you know like she says something like so that other day when we met last week you looked at me funny and i i perceived it as you thinking that that I was a bad person or that you thought I was a slut or something. I I felt like you were judging me that I was promiscuous. Well, in that moment I could say something like that's inappropriate. I don't talk about that sort of thing. Or I could say something like, how dare you accuse me of such a thing? Get out of my office. Or I don't know. I, I could exhibit discomfort in a lot of different ways. But it's exactly why she's in therapy. Just because she's involving me in the issue does not mean that therapy is still not occurring. So in that moment, I would say, okay, well, that's that's interesting. Well, the first thing I'd do is I would try to protect myself from making it personal I because I would feel attacked and I would feel insulted I would feel like man I would never think that of a client so how dare she you know accuse me of such a thing so I try to calm down myself say everything's okay she's she's working stuff out she's trusting me enough to express that to me so let's calm down and then I would say okay well I'm glad that you told me about that I'm glad you trust me with that tell me more What what else did you think I was thinking and you know, we just have a conversation about it, and through that conversation, the client is metabolizing their issues from the past, and they're internalizing a new relationship in which the therapist is providing a secure base upon which the client can explore these things, a, a base upon which the client is not exploited and is not rejected, and so, so that's the approach. So, so with this supervisee what I recommended to her after telling her she has every right to draw any boundaries that she wants, any boundaries regarding particularly sexual violations, that if she doesn't, if she's okay with it and she feels comfortable doing this, then she she wants to bring it up in therapy. Like you could with this mother, and you know, take the mother aside and say something like, "So the other day when you mentioned that I was attractive and that he should feel lucky to talk to an attractive woman, I was just wondering what you were thinking in that moment because you know, on one hand, I I, th- I think it's it, it might be true, but but has he mentioned anything at home or? What were you saying with that? And as I sort of role play that, it sounds judgy as it comes out. But, but in the moment, I would hope that I would say it in a less judgy way. So you just bring it up and you say, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what that means. And let's talk about your, your son's emerging sexuality and what that means to you and how do you want to approach that and how much, how much do you want to be involved in that? Cause it sounds like you kind of want to be involved in your 13 year old boys emerging sexuality. It kind of, so, so you're just calling it out. You're just, you're just saying, let's have a conversation about it. It's okay. Let's talk about it. And so, you know, maybe the mom is worried about about his emerging sexuality or maybe she actually subtly wants the 13 year old to be more sexual or I don't know. So, So there's just lots of conversations that you can have. And again, by being a stable, understanding, containing, secure person as a therapist, you can help families explore that in a way that will likely head towards healing for them as long as you don't judge it or reject it. Okay, so another question that a supervisee asked me recently was – she wanted strategies for helping parents work better together as a team. This is a common issue for therapy and a common issue in families. And so I just thought I would provide some tips that I provide to parents and supervisees regarding how to help parents come together come together as a team. The first thing that I often recommend to parents is establish workable ways for both people that they both agree upon regarding how to initiate conversations about parenting. Because in some families, what the parents will do is, you know, the two parents are there, and, you know, seven-year-old Johnny is acting up, and dad decides to parent in a particular way, and mom doesn't agree. And so mom will say to the father, hey, father, don't do that, right in front of the seven-year-old boy. And what this does, and, and there are some models of parenting that allows for this kind of disagreement between parents, but often the way that parents do it, it's ultimately destructive to the parenting, in that it, it shows the child that the parents are not on the same team, which not only provides the child a way of manipulating the parents, but it also, but it also shows the child that the parents are not secure. Ch- children need to believe that their parents are on the same page, whether they're divorced or not, incidentally. They need to believe that their parents are together on things, even when they're not. Because children are black and white thinkers, and when they see their parents disagreeing, it makes them feel as though their world doesn't have a strong foundation, and therefore they they feel insecure in the world. And then they have anxiety, and then lots of bad things start happening. And so you don't want to show to the children you have disagreements. And you particularly don 't want to show to the children that you have extreme disagreements because that is you know even more uh, in, you know anxiety producing for children and by anxiety i don 't mean that they necessarily develop a phobia I mean that they 'll have insecure attachment, which will lead to acting out and low self esteem and potential drug abuse and lots of other bad things so so what i what I often find that parents will come up with is they prefer a way of talking about these things behind closed doors. And, but, but how do you initiate those conversations? So you might say, so you know, father is doing something and the mom doesn't like it. She really doesn't like it. And so, she's, so she'll say to the father, not necessarily in the moment, but later on. Because if you say something in the moment, not only will you be upset and and maybe say something that you'll regret later, but you want to wait for the parenting situation to sort of calm down. And then you might, you know, talk to the father and say, hey, could you could you talk to me in the bedroom for a second? And then you go into the bedroom and then you have a, as calm as you can a conversation about what just happened. And you try to come to an agreement about things. And you try to establish a way of parenting that both people can can stand behind now parents don't have to parent in the exact same way but they have to work together and they have to be on board with each other's style so so again you know father's doing something mom doesn't like it the the other issue is that the, the mother has to gauge how bad she doesn't like it so so parents you have to you have to figure out okay is it really worth me addressing this with my spouse how how annoyed am i with the parenting that my spouse is doing in this moment on the scale from 1 to 10 with 10 being you know the the, the most upset if it's just a 2 or a 3 maybe it's not worth mentioning to your to your spouse until enough 2 or 3s build up but if it's a 7 or an 8 or a 9 then you, you know you're going to feel compelled to deal with that so it's another issue of like you want to draw a line in terms of uh, what needs to be discussed with your spouse and what doesn't, because no spouse wants to be constantly criticized for the way that they're parenting. And so if it's a seven, then you want to wait. Then you want to say, hey, could I talk with you for a second? Now, on the other hand, if a parent is physically abusing or emotionally abusing a child, and you have to intervene because you're seeing something horrible happening, and again, you want to establish what that exactly means up front so you don't just react in the moment, then you might have to react in the moment. And those are difficult situations. And so the lesser of two evils has to be established in in terms of you don't want abuse to happen, but you don't want to undermine the parent, the other parent, but you also don't want abuse to happen. So you might have to undermine in order to stop the abuse. So it's a complicated matter, but those are the recommendations that I make. It's like, hey, would you like to talk? And then you go talk and and you try to come to some agreements. The other thing is, is that... Having one or two conversations about parenting will often not produce good results. You know, People will come to me session two and say, okay, we did what you said, but we got in this big fight and it didn't work. Well, if, you, if you're not used to talking about these sorts of things with each other and you haven't had a lot of trust built up over time and you have drastically different ways of parenting – then you're going to have to have many, many, many conversations about parenting. And this is one thing that some parents just are not prepared for. They, they don't realize that parenting requires a lot of conversations. If you want to be on the same team – You have to talk about this sort of thing a lot and you have to have good communication skills and your relationship has to be strong. And if you don't have a strong relationship, then your parenting differences are going to become exacerbated and you're going to become quite polarized and you're going to start seeing the other parent as the enemy and you're going to start resenting things and things are going to get ugly. And so it requires a lot of hard work. Um, Parents that do this sort of work, they know this, they know that you have to be very intentional and you have to swallow your pride and you have to give the other person the benefit of, of the doubt, and you have to calm yourself down, and you have to not be a control freak, and you have to realize that the other parent is going to parent in ways that you don't appreciate, and that's, you know, choose your battles. And so all those kinds of things, you have to, you have to be, you know, quite mature in order to work as a team with the other parent. And so along those lines, with, with many parents that I talk with, I recommend at first, for the first month or year, that they talk every day about parenting and parents will say every day. And I, I say, yeah, every day, because there are issues likely coming up every single day. And so every day you have to have time set aside. When when do you want to do that? And they'll say, oh, okay, well, in the morning we have time. Okay, well, in the morning. Or in the evening we have time. Okay, after after you put the kids to bed, 15 minutes of scheduled time where you review your parenting practices over that day. And if it's all good things, then then you say good things. In fact, I encourage you to say good things. I appreciated it when you backed me up in that time or appreciated the way you approached Jennifer's, you know, Acting out in that moment. I I really appreciate that. And you establish routines. You might have to write stuff down. When this happens, this is our policy of how we approach that that behavior. Or, hey, we have a big question here. Let's bring that into therapy. And so you, you write stuff down. Other things that I tell parents is understand that your way of parenting is not the only way to parent. I often talk about a range of parenting styles with parents, and because I, I see a lot of parents coming into me, and they and they'll you know one person will be on the passive side, and one people will, and another parent will be on the non passive side and so one's you know one's very good with with authority and with establishing limits, and the other person is very good with with love and and being a friend to their child and th- they look at each other and they think the other parent is terrible, you know the friendly parent is looking at the other parent saying, you know he or she is just a hard ass all the time and the the person who's comfortable with with limit setting looks at the other parent says you you have no responsibility you're just a pushover and you can't be a friend to your children and what I tell people is often what I find is that both of you as parents are within the range of what is healthy parenting you're just at different ends of that range and both of you have strengths that you can bring to the table. And both of you probably have issues that you need to start to you know work on. You know, the author the authoritative parent, the person who's very good with authority, might need to loosen up a little bit and, and express more affection and, and choose when to be authoritative and when to have um Affection and, and understanding of the child, and the permissive parent might need to start bolstering their ability to draw limits and so so that 's the first thing I'll say to parents is, is just because the other parent is different from you doesn't make them bad as parents, and just because they parent in ways that you didn't grow up with in terms of your family of origin doesn't mean that they're bad parents because again, like I said, most parents are trying their best and and they're doing mostly good. So that's one thing. It's just if you're a parent, understand that your way is not the only way. And that's a major understanding that parents need to accept is, is that. Because, a lot of, because we're inherently narcissistic, we tend to believe all of our ideas are the best. And if people don't agree with us, then they're all idiots. And so I try to work on that. The other thing that I try to do is I try to work with parents regarding how they might be manipulating the other parent to agree with their projections. So say you're, you're very permissive as a parent and uh, you wouldn't label yourself as that. You would say that you're, you're very affectionate and you, you're, you know, you're a softie that when it comes to discipline, it's hard for you to discipline your child because you feel guilty and, and you also just have such a good bond with your child that it's hard for you to draw limits. Well, what that does is it will often force the other parent to be the bad guy. And when you're always the good guy and when the children come to you for comfort and to get away with things, then someone in the system needs to be the limit setter. Otherwise, the situation will be completely chaotic and the children will, you know, the insane will run the asylum, shall we say. <laughs> children need limits. Any, any parent or any person who deals with children understands that children not only need limits, but they thrive within limits. I'll tell you a story that I, I probably told before but when i first started out as a therapist i was you know 26 27 years old and i really wanted to be the sort of therapist that was not authoritative that that didn't have that didn't exert authority and i wanted to be the cool guy and so when i had a group of, of teenagers in a group therapy situation there were you know 10 junior high kids in in a group therapy session and I wanted to be that guy that I, I didn't want to be a teacher and I didn't want to be a parent to them. I wanted them to be free to, to do what they wanted to do. And so, and for those of you that know middle school age kids out there, you're, you're already knowing where this is headed. And yes, it did. It ended up getting quite chaotic and I completely lost control of the group. And, you know, by session five or six or seven, it was chaos. And I hated coming to this group. And then, I don't know, I don't know what session, like 10 or 15 or something. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I lost my shit. I just, I got really, I mean, it wasn't terrible, but, but I got angry and frustrated. And I just, I yelled, I said, you know, sit down and shut up. Or I don't know, probably wasn't that bad, was something along those lines. And the kids sat down. And they instantly started to interact in a way that was helpful. You know, when they were chaotic and acting all out of control, I could see people getting hurt by the situation. And I could see them leaving group in a – they were more riled up after they left the group, which is, the primary purpose of the group was to help them behave better in school. And here I was sending them out of group, and they were even more Lord of the Flies than they were when they walked in. And so when I lost it, I realized that, oh – Maybe there is something to this authority thing. And so I started to exert more control. And when, and when the kids would say certain things or, you know, get out of their seat and start running around. I would stop the group and say, you know, could you please sit down? Or, hey, what you said right there—that's—that's that's against the rules we've established in this group that we don't insult other people. You know, can you apologize about what you said? And so when I did that, I found that the kids really thrived within that, and I realized something that I didn't realize before, and that is, is that the kids wanted me to be. An authority. They didn't want it. They didn't want me to be a jerk. And they didn't want me to be controlling and to criticize them and to, you know, be abusive. But they wanted me to provide structure. Because children and really people, even adults that I find that they need structure. And when they know their boundaries, that's when they can relax and thrive within that structure. Now, as a leader and as a therapist, you have to intuit and figure out what kind of structure is needed and what kinds of structure you need to let go of. But in general, that's what I found. And so, so when I'm talking to a parent that is, you know, on the permissive side of things, I I will say to them, understand that because you're choosing to be the friend of your of your kids, in a sense, you're forcing your spouse to be the structure of the family because someone needs to be the, the structure. And so, if you don't want your husband or wife to be such a hard ass with things, you're going to have to start drawing limits. Because the more limits you draw, the less limits your spouse will need to draw, and the more uh, time your spouse will have to be the friend of your of your children. And this is a novel idea to people, you know, because they think. Well, because my spouse is being so controlling and so authoritarian, I have to be more of a friend i have to be I have to be less of an authority to counterbalance my spouse, but that's directly. Opposite of the truth is the more you become the friend, the more your spouse will become an authority. And so if you want to fix the system, you have to move toward the middle, which will naturally cause your spouse to come toward the middle. And if you've been in either one of those, you know, positions, you totally know what that feels like. And often what will happen in families, the less differentiated the family is, the more polarized the parents will become. And these kinds of roles will, will, will start to show themselves. And other tips that I give parents are, you know, you got to work less. In in Seattle, people work too much. And I think around the United States generally people work too much. And what I say is is you got to work less. And you have to stop trying to keep keeping up with the Joneses. I mean, everyone wants a 5,000 square foot home in Seattle, and it's just ridiculous. Why should you be beholden to a mortgage when you only have one life to live? You only have one chance on this planet to live a good life. Why would you spend so much of your time working at a job to pay off a mortgage of a house that is literally 10 times bigger than you need it to be? All that space just means more space to heat and more space to clean and more space to decorate and more more space to to get annoyed with. You know, just get a smaller home and stop buying so many goddamn cars I mean this, this this consumerism society it just it just boggles me. And so when you reduce your expenditure and you, you don't need to work as much, and when you don't work as much, guess what? You have tons of free time. You can sleep more. You can spend more time relaxing. You can spend more time going to the spa or going on hikes or having sex or spending time with your children or visiting with a friend or listening to a podcast or, you know, work less people, sleep more, improve your relationships with people and including your spouse, particularly your spouse, regarding parenting. You need a strong relationship. You need to be having intimate time. You need to be checking in with your relationship. Don't put your marriage on the back burner because, believe me, things will suffer. And improve the way that you listen to each other. Improve your compassionate listening skills. All right. So moving on to another topic. So, I had another supervisee that asked me, uh, he said, I have an 11 year old who is obsessed with video games. He changes every conversation to be about video games. How do I get him to talk about something else? And whenever I hear the phrase, get your client to do something, you know, whenever I hear get him or get her to blank from a therapist, the first thing I think of is the question itself is untherapeutic. If you're ever in an effort as a therapist trying to get someone to do something, then you've, you've lost, I, in my mind, you've lost the therapeutic stance. You're now in a position of trying to control someone. You're in a power struggle. You've decided what's best for this person, and you're pushing them to do something that they're not ready to do. And so, so that's the first thing, I think. The other thing, I think, is what is therapy is a big question. What is therapy? Well, commonly what people think therapy looks like is you have a therapist sitting, you have therapist and client sitting in chairs facing each other, and they are talking about sadness and difficulty. And the client is saying, I'm sad about this. And the therapist is empathizing with that. And the client is saying, thank you so much for empathizing with me. Well, certainly this is a version of therapy, but when, especially when working with kids and teenagers, Therapy looks. Can, can, therapy can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to look in this quintessential let's talk about our feelings kind of way. So for instance, when an 11-year-old comes into therapy and is obsessed about video games and routes all conversations back to video games, then just go with them and talk about video games. So in your mind, if you have a treatment focus of, say, the child's Dad abandoned the family, and you believe that the child is struggling with that loss and struggling with that rejection. And you try to bring it up and you say, Hey, let's talk about your dad. And he's like, Oh, yeah, well, I was playing Assassin's Creed the other night, and da 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 da. Well, instead of getting frustrated and getting into a power struggle with that teenager, which is natural, totally natural, I have certainly been there before, instead of doing that, go with them and see if you can work symbolically with them. So for instance, they, they start talking about, about Assassin's Creed or whatever video game. And you, instead of just sitting there passively and being annoyed, you can start asking them questions. So tell me about the game. You know, what did you do in the game? Well, I was, you know, doing this and that. Oh, so, so, and, and tell me about that part. Well, I was fighting against, you know, the boss at the boss level and, And, you know, and I destroyed him. I destroyed him. Oh, Okay, so you destroyed the big boss person. At this moment in therapy, in my mind, I have this hypothesis, I can't prove it. But I have this hypothesis that in reality, when he's talking about the boss man, he's really talking about his dad. He's really talking about his fantasy or his, his, his impulse to destroy his father for leaving him he wants to attack his father for hurting him, which is a total natural thing to do, right? If the 11 year old was saying, I have impulses to attack my dad because he hurt my feelings. You would think, Oh, this is, this is good therapy. But, most people, particularly children, don't have the language or the maturity or they're not ready to talk directly about the things that they're sad about. So they'll talk indirectly about them, and they might not even know exactly they're talking about it, but they are. And so as he's talking about these experiences in the in the game, you can start to imagine that potentially we're talking about this other issue. And so I might say, I might, I might exhibit the same kinds of corrective experiences with the child that I would if he was talking directly about something. So, for instance, he was talking directly about his dad and he was saying, I'm, I'm, I'm really hurt that my dad did this. I would provide a correction, corrective experience and say, you know, I'm really sorry that happened to you. I, you know, I totally understand that you would feel that way. It's awful that your parent did that to you and da, 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 da. And, in, instead the child's talking about Assassin's creed and saying you know so i destroyed the boss and da, da da and i'd say okay tell me you know I, I would say yeah i absolutely understand your desire to destroy the boss it feels good doesn't it it feels it feels good to be able to destroy them especially when they're so hard to get past or you know i might start using language around that Another thing is in video games, a lot of times they're social. And so you can start talking about their relationships with other people on when they play versus other people online. You can say, Oh, or who, who are your friends online? Oh, well, I talk, I play with this guild of other people. Tell me about those people. Well, there's a guy with, you know, the gamer tag of, kill shit 69 and him and I are best friends or, or something. <laughs> can I just say that the people's gamer tags are just the dumbest things ever. I, I, when I play online, I'm just like, really, that's your gamer tag. Um, uh, not that I have good gamer tags, but I don't know. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, you can absolutely get into their relational material by asking them questions along those lines. So again, uh, my advice to people is that don't get into power struggles and work with what you got and work symbolically with people. Cause that's often the way people operate anyway. All right. Well that does it for another episode. If you could go to our website at psychology and donate, that would be fantastic. You can also like us on Facebook. If you like us on Facebook, you can participate in our Tuesday tough or bluff game which is really fun because we get to interact with the listeners in that way. That does it for another episode. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself because you deserve it.